Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. By way of review, last week we began our Christmas confession series, three weeks worth. Confessions in the sense of confessions of faith, not confessions of sin. Uh, And we are going to look at three such confessions that occurred during the early days of Jesus' ministry. And so I asked you to to memorize these, uh, not just so that you could uh, remember them, but so that you could think about them during the Christmas season. So last week, we heard John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And hopefully you repeated that phrase to yourself several times over the last week as you were reminded of the Christmas story. And hopefully you rejoiced that the Lamb has not just taken away the sins of many, but you personalized that and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who took my sins away. We began that sermon last week with an Old Testament story, the story of Abraham and Isaac, and so I thought it would be appropriate to begin today's sermon with another Old Testament story. Only this story is not nearly as well known, and perhaps it's a little more complicated. There is only one figure in this story. His name is Jacob, but his name was later changed to Israel. The name Jacob means he cheats or he is a deceiver, which will prove accurate in his life. And given that history, I'm not quite sure why we named our son Jacob, but gratefully, he did not turn out to be a deceiver or a cheat. But the biblical Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, whom he deceived out of his birthright and later out of the blessing that was due the firstborn. And as a result, when his father was dead, Jacob had to flee for his life from his brother Esau and lived in a foreign land for many years. There he married two sisters, and between the two of them and their handmaidens, he had 12 sons who, of course, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, with that as the background, I want to mention two events that happened in the life of Jacob, one on his way out of town as he's fleeing from Esau, and one many years later as he is returning to his home. On the way out of town, he had a dream, and in that dream, there was a ladder set up between earth and heaven, and on that ladder, the Bible says the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So that happens on his way out of town. On his way back to meet Esau, he famously wrestles with an angel of God, or what many believe to be a pre-incarnate Christ, and at the end of that match, his name is changed to Israel, which means God's fighter, or he strives with God. So keep all of that in mind as we move forward now to our text Keep in mind that ladder with the angels ascending and descending, and a man named Jacob, whose name means deceiver, has his name changed to Israel. So we are in John chapter 1 this morning, verses 43 through 51, with our second confession. 
And this confession is going to combine a familiar title of Jesus, one that we actually heard John say last week. You remember at the end of the verses last week, John said, this is the Son of God. And we are going to repeat that today. But we are going to combine that with the second title, and that is the King of Israel. Both of these titles testify that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. There's actually a third title for him in this passage as well, and we will see that and mention it, but it will not be our focus. So we are talking today about the Son of God, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, and here's our confession. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. All right. So you notice the confession. It's right there in verse 49. But again, we are going to look at all of these verses. But the part I want you to memorize is that confession. We can leave the rabbi part off if you want. And so I want you to memorize, not only behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but now we're looking and saying, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, both of those statements mean that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Now, all three of our points this morning will have to do with what the Son of God is doing in these verses and by extension in our lives. And I'm just using Son of God rather than the full confession, but you have to memorize all of it. Of course, I can't make you do that. I'm encouraging you to do that. So we begin by seeing that the Son of God calls his followers. You notice that we are one section removed from where we were last week, so I do need to bring you up to speed on what has happened in between. On the next day, after John's confession, Jesus appears again, and John repeats the Lamb of God confession. Then two of John's disciples begin to follow Jesus, and they have a brief dialogue with him. We learn that one of these two disciples is a man by the name of Andrew, and Andrew immediately goes and finds his brother Simon. And look what he tells his brother Simon in verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. When Simon comes to Jesus, he changes his name to Peter, which means rock. Now, we sometimes give people nicknames, but we give them nicknames on the basis of their character or what they've done in the past. 
That is, we give them nicknames according to who they are in our own minds. But this is a nickname or a change of names that Jesus is given to Simon for the future. This is a prophetic name change. He is not the rock just yet. It will take several years, but eventually he will be. That brings us to the verses we are looking at this morning. Again, we are on the next day. So it is now the fourth day since John the Baptist's ministry began, and it is the third day since our last confession. So Jesus decides to go to Galilee, perhaps because he got an invitation to a wedding there in the mail that he is going to attend in chapter 2. And so he begins the journey to Galilee, which is in the north. If you know your geography, Galilee is in the north. Judea, where Jerusalem is, is in the south. And in between is the area called Samaria. Obviously, the Sea of Galilee is in this northern region, as is Nazareth, places we visited several years ago when we took a trip there. But here Jesus finds Philip, and he calls him with these two brief words. A very simple call and command, follow me. I mean, if you want a basic definition of what Christianity is, of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, there it is. Follow me. Christians follow Christ. It is that simple. Of course, the opposite is also true. And that is, if you are not following Christ, then I would caution you about being so bold in claiming yourself to be a Christian, because a Christian follows Christ. Now, all three of these men, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, are from a city called Bethsaida, a city on the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Syria. Mark's gospel says that Andrew and Peter lived in Capernaum, but that, that is not a conflict. They certainly could have been from Bethsaida, and moved to Capernaum, even as Jesus was from Nazareth, but of course he was born in Bethlehem. So Philip finds Nathanael and shares the news with him, though we do not know what kind of relationship they had. In fact, we don't know much about Nathanael at all. He is the one who is making the confession we are looking at today, but we know basically nothing more about him. The only other time he appears in the gospel narratives, the only other time he's found in the New Testament is in chapter 21 of John's gospel where Jesus appears to a group of seven men after his resurrection and Nathanael is one of them. And there we learn that he is from Cana, another town in Galilee, the very town that the wedding is going to take place in chapter 2. So some have tried to identify Nathaniel with Bartholomew, but that is far from certain. What we know at this point is that four or five men have now been called to be followers of the Son of God. You say, well, why four or five? Well, we're not for certain who that unnamed man is that is initially called with Andrew. Some people say that is uh, Philip, and if so, there are four. If it's not Philip, then there are five. Now, before we move on, I want to make a couple of observations. I've called this section, the Son of God calls his followers, and yet it seems like that men are inviting men to come to Jesus. And the word found is here several times, meaning we have found Jesus. And yet in Philip's case, it is said that Jesus found Philip. So is that confusing? Do people find Jesus? Or does Jesus find people? 
And the answer is yes. Now, once again, I don't want to fall off the edge here on one side or the other, but keep both truths in balance. The Bible does say that on our own, no one seeks after God, that left to ourselves, we will not follow God because of our sin nature. Therefore, it is Christ who pursues us. He is the hound of heaven, as an old English poet referred to God and his pursuit of us. On the other hand, we must come to Christ, something we also see repeated in this section. The first two disciples leave John and follow Jesus, and he asks them, what are, you, what are you seeking? And they ask where he is staying, and Jesus says, come and you will see. And when Nathaniel is skeptical, he, Philip simply says, come and see, which he does. So again, left to ourselves, on our own natural inclinations, we will not follow God. But the Spirit begins to work in our hearts and lives and draws us unto Christ, as the Scripture says. And as he draws, we respond by following him. So he finds us, and we find him. I also want to call your attention to another recurring theme in these encounters. When one person comes in contact with Jesus, they immediately go and tell someone they know. Jesus doesn't tell them to do that. He will later. That's what the Great Commission is all about. But Jesus, in these instances, do not have to, does not have to tell these men to go find someone else and let them know that they found the Messiah. Instead, it is natural. It is joyful. They have been waiting for this moment, and they have discovered this moment. And so the natural thing for them to do is go and tell someone else that they have found Jesus. I mean, this is the message of Christmas that the long-awaited-for Messiah has arrived, and because of that, they naturally want others to meet him. God still uses this old method to draw people unto himself. One person telling another person about the fact that they have found Jesus. In fact, I would say that this is remaining the most effective method there is. God has seen fit to choose us to spread the message, to seek and to save the lost. Even as we saw that video earlier that talked about the lostness around the world, and then that scripture verse, how are they going to hear unless someone goes to them and preaches? That is still the most effective method for faithful followers of Jesus to tell others that they have found the Christ. So I ask you this Christmas season, when was the last time you told someone about the message of Christmas? I don't mean the details of the story. I don't mean recounting for them the events that led up to that day. I'm talking about when is the last time you told someone that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel? When is the last time you told someone that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I want to encourage you to put that on your Christmas to-do list. I know it's already long. I know you have a ton of things to do, but this ought to be right up there at the top that you need to tell someone you know this Christmas who does not know Christ that you have found the Messiah and his name is Jesus. Well, secondly, we need to move on to see that the Son of God changes our focus. He not only calls his followers, he changes our focus. And I've worded it that way to help us see that even as he changes Nathaniel, he also continues to change us. We start here with Philip's invitation 
to Nate. I'm going to shorten him and call him Nate. We see this in verse 45. The wording about Moses and the prophets is a summary way of saying that all of the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. It would be like us saying from Genesis to Malachi. It's a way of saying that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now Moses does predict in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that there is coming another prophet who is like him and certainly Jesus does fulfill that. And by the way, this is a good reminder that the Old Testament is not just some exciting stories and character studies from which we can learn moral principles. The Old Testament is first and foremost the story of redemption, pointing us to the coming Messiah, which then the New Testament shows us has been fulfilled in Jesus. And that is why we are not just New Testament Christians. I understand why people say that, because we are in the error of the New Testament. But we are not just New Testament Christians. We also must know the Old Testament. Because the more we know the Old Testament, the more the New Testament opens up for us, as we saw last week and as we'll see again this week. But Nate's response is unique. He does not respond like other people do in these stories. Instead, he is very skeptical. And he pins the famous line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It seems that even then, there were some crosstown rivals going on. Remember, Nathaniel is from Cana. It's a neighboring city of Nazareth, both of these small cities in Galilee, so very much perhaps like crosstown rivals, high schools, or competing colleges, he says, well, nothing good can come from that place. It's probably like some of you said many years ago, when, if you were here many years ago, and you first started interviewing Scott Hood to come to this church, some of you said, can anything good come out of South Knoxville? And we're still weighing that after 20-something years. But that's what Nathaniel is doing here, though there's probably more to it than that. It's not just hometown rivalries, but there certainly was some petty jealousies going on. But these men knew the Old Testament Scriptures. We know they knew the Old Testament Scriptures because they say, we have found the Messiah. They are looking for him, and they know that the Old Testament pointed forward to the Messiah. And yet, nowhere in the Old Testament is the town named Nazareth listed. It is never mentioned in the Old Testament. So they don't seem to know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They just know that he grew up in Nazareth, and there was no prophecy of a Messiah coming from the, this insignificant out-of-the-way village. In fact, this actually became a term of derision. You'll see this in Acts later, that when they talk about these believers, sometimes they call them this Nazarene sect. On another occasion, the Pharisees dismissed the whole region by saying this, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so all of this is probably in Nathaniel's mind when he is told that they have found Jesus who is from Nazareth and he is the Messiah, but to his credit, he is willing to go find out for himself. And this leads to our confession for the day and Nate's change from skepticism to belief. In fact, he is the first person in John's gospel to have it said of him specifically 
that he believed. Now, I'm not saying Andrew and Philip did not. I'm simply saying he is the first one of whom it is said specifically that he believed. And that's why John, the gospel writer, is writing. Chapter 20, he gives us his purpose in writing. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe. And Nathaniel is the first to do just that. And the evidence he has so early on is the supernatural knowledge of Jesus, who clearly knows things about him that no one else knows. It's not important what he may or may not have been doing under the fig tree. People speculate about this. People love to speculate about the Bible and fill in the blanks that the Bible doesn't tell us. But it's not important what he was doing or what he was thinking under the fig tree. It also implies, Jesus' statement, that he knew what Nathanael said about Nazareth. Now, again, we're not told that specifically, but if Jesus knew what he was doing under the fig tree, if he saw him under the fig tree, then he would have known what Nathanael said as well. But more importantly still is that Jesus knew Nathanael's character. He knew who this man was on the inside, not just what he had been doing. And this is where the first part of that Old Testament story I began with comes into play in this story. He calls Nathanael an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. But God had changed his name to Israel. And now standing before Jesus is an Israelite, a descendant of Jacob who has no deceit. He is a man of character. He is a man without impure motives who was willing to examine the claims of Jesus being the Messiah for himself. Now, we tend to think sometimes that we can read other people's minds. We think we can know their motives and know why they are doing what they are doing. And as a result, we often jump to conclusions about people for good or bad. And then later on, we often discover that what we thought was their motive wasn't their motive at all, and we've jumped to conclusions that were false. But Jesus does know such things. He knows the heart and the mind of Nathaniel. And can I tell you that the Bible says the same thing about us? God knows our hearts. Hebrews chapter 4 says, the word of God is able to discern between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are not hiding anything from God. He is the all-knowing, all-seeing God so that nothing is hidden from him and therefore there's no point in trying. But it's likewise true that God is able to change our focus. He is able to turn a man like Nathaniel from a skeptic into a believer, a faithful follower, and he is able to do the same for us as well which leads Nathaniel to make this confession where there are basically three titles. I said earlier there were three titles in this section. There's actually four. The three titles in the confession, the first one is rabbi. That's simply a word that means teacher. And so we're not going to deal with that one, but I wanted you to understand what that word means. It doesn't have any messianic implications to it. It's not a divine title. It simply means teacher. So Son of God is the second title, and that, of course, is our main fo focus. And we've already heard in the, in the prologue, we read this earlier from verse 14, that he is the Son of God. The book of Hebrews is another book in the Bible that begins with a, a beautiful opening. 
I told you last week, John's gospel has one of the most beautiful openings in scripture. Hebrews is maybe second to that. In Hebrews, the Bible says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his son. It goes on to say there that God never said to any of the angels, you are my son. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, I certainly don't have the time to go into the Trinity this morning. We did that some time ago in a specific sermon. But you do understand that God is one, though found in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So this is a divine and messianic title, which again makes us wonder how Nathaniel could have known this so early in the ministry of Jesus and just on the evidence that Jesus knew what, where he was and what he was doing. And we have to come to the same conclusion that we came to last week. And the likelihood is then that Nathaniel did not know exactly what he was saying. He could not have known exactly what this meant as we do now. His was a partial understanding. He identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but he certainly has no idea of the path that the Messiah is going to take in the days to come. But his focus has been transformed. He goes from, can anything good come out of Nazareth, to you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And that's our third title, king of Israel. That is certainly expected and yet was not often used by Jesus because of the misconceptions that were so prominent in his day. I mean, even at his trial, he has to clarify that he is not the kind of king that everyone expected him to be, though he is a king. But again, this is a, essentially a divine and messianic title once again, if rightly understood. So then the question becomes, has your focus been changed? Do you now have confidence so that you can make this confession? So that you can say to Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Again, I don't want you to just memorize that, though I am asking you to do that. I want you to be able to confidently state it for yourself and understand what it means. The third thing we see here is that the Son of God confirms our faith. Again, I've worded it that way to help us understand that it's not just the story of Nathaniel and his confirmation of his faith, but it's our story as well if we are believers. And that's not just me trying to apply this. Look at verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What you don't see in your English versions there is the word you is plural. It's not singular. He is not just talking to Nathaniel now. He's talking to all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, giving us a confirmation of our faith. For Nathaniel, it's in the future. For us, it is in the past as we look back to what Jesus did. Now, I do want to make a slight adjustment, and I don't want you to think I'm making this adjustment because I'm trying to change Scripture. But I do want you to look and see what Jesus says here in verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? It's a question, right? Do you believe? Question mark. But that's more likely probably a statement. In other words, this is an interpretive issue here that the interpreters have turned into a question. But it could also simply be, because I saw you, you believe. Meaning, 
is not asking. He's not being, Jesus is not being skeptical of Nathaniel's faith here. He's simply saying, you believe on the basis of this little evidence, but I'm going to show you and others much more evidence in the days to come. It's not just going to be supernatural knowledge. Instead, he's going to show them miracles and healings. In fact, in chapter 2, in the very next verses, he's going to perform his first miracle. So he's simply saying, you believe on the basis of such little evidence, but I'm going to show you and others a whole lot more. There are greater things to come that will confirm your faith in Jesus and the Messiah as indeed accurate. And so here we get our second allusion to that opening story from the Old Testament. You remember Jacob had that dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And now Jesus says essentially the same thing, though there is no ladder here. He says you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. And most believe that he is referencing the dream that Jacob had here. But he's clearly stating that they will receive heavenly confirmation of who he is far beyond what Nathaniel has at the moment. Now, we, of course, know that there were times in Jesus' ministry where angels did minister to him. We know after his temptation in the wilderness of 40 days, the angels came and ministered to him. But the promise here is a general one, that much greater heavenly evidence is to come, and that will actually begin, as I said, in the next chapter. So concluding this section is yet another title. This one, spoken by Jesus himself, He calls himself the Son of Man. We're not looking at that title specifically, but I wanted to mention it because it is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses that title of himself way more than anybody else does. In fact, some 80 times or more in the gospel narratives, he calls himself this. And this certainly calls to mind Daniel's prophecy of the one coming like a Son of Man. And the twin titles, Son of God and Son of Man, Give us both the full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus. So our confession this week, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. But as we try to memorize and apply that, don't forget last week's. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These speak of the purpose of Christmas. Why do we celebrate all month long what we do? Because the Messiah has come. He is the Son of God. He is our reigning King. And He is going to rule and reign forever. And this confession speaks of His power to do the very thing we talked about last week. Last week was the purpose. He came to take away our sins. This week is the power. That is, He has the power to do the very thing He said He was going to do. He is God. He is not just a good teacher. He is not merely a prophet. He is not a moral example to be followed or a courageous life to be admired. So again, as you look at the manger scene in the weeks ahead, I don't want your thoughts to be, how cute is that? I want your thoughts to be, behold, the Lamb of God. I want your thoughts to be, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. In the trials of Jesus, Jesus didn't say a whole lot. In fact, he was criticized for his silence. And then Caiaphas finally implored him, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered him and said, you have said so. 
But from now on, I tell you, you will see the Son of Man. There's that title again. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. The high priest, Caiaphas, responded to that statement of Jesus by tearing his robe and claiming that Jesus had spoke blasphemy. While the crowds concluded he was deserving of death. Now, my question to you is, how are you going to respond? Jesus declares himself the son of God, the king of Israel. Do you call that blasphemy? Or do you respond in humility and become a follower of Christ? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for this season of Christmas where we are reminded of your coming through Christ into this world. We pray that uh, we would see the significance of all of this, that it wouldn't just be a a celebration of various things, but instead we would be reminded that you are the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. May we make that profession and follow up that profession by faithfully following you as you've commanded. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.